We are continuing to speak on the love of God. Now, last week we said some fascinating things, and I would say the thing that stood out for me the most was we talked about love inside a family relationship. If you think of justice inside a family, do you think it's just for the father to kill the son if the son does something wrong? No. It is not. And when we come to the love of God, we have defined our whole atonement theory and so many things about God outside of the parameters of family logic. Another thing that we said last week was that we start our relationship by praying the Our Father in this way, saying Our Father. So we don't stand or start our relationship with God with Our Master, Our Lord, or our boss, or uh, our accuser. We start with our Father. So when we start with anything we say, when talk, we talk about our atonement plan, we talk about finances in the kingdom, the church, fellowship, uh, and whatever we want to talk about uh, the church, breakthrough, whatever, we have to start it from the platform of Father, God as our Father. So it's our Father, hallowed be your name. What is the name of God? The name of God, I mean, we can look at some of the old Hebrew names, but the greatest name of God is Father, and also Jesus, Savior. He is the Savior. May salvation be magnified. May it be at a place where my life is available for you, saving me free from my efforts. Last week we also talked about the analogy of a lifesaver that goes out to save people's lives um, and when he judges someone, he judges their situation and he judges as if it is safe for them where they are and by that judgment he comes to a bottom line conclusion and if that conclusion is that that person is drowning, then he goes and gives his life, swims in, don't judge the person, don't make him feel guilty, but rather calm him down and assure him that he can swim him out and bring him to safety. And we define the love inside those beautiful terms. So if you haven't watched last week's service, please make sure you go to dynamicministries.com and just uh, look at the last week's service there and you can find it. It will really, really bless you. Now, We've established that love is basically God coming and making His life available for us so that we can live through Him and that we don't live by the law. We also said that love is the Word and that God is the Word. In other words, oh, sorry, I put it the wrong way. We say that God is love and that God is the Word. So if God is the Word and God is love, oh, God equals Word, God equals love, therefore Word equals love. That means that the Word of God has to be the Word of God's love in order to be the Word of God. So if we study the Bible, we have to study, and we want to read the Word, we have to study the love of God. And the love of God is herein, we read last week in 4 John, uh, 1 John 4, that 
He gave His life so that we can live through Him and not by our own works. And that the love is here, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and saved us from our death. So if you read the Word, it must always be the Word of God's love. And love is herein. This is the package. It's like the communion, uh, like, like I would say, uh, the wine is herein, in this glass. Herein is the wine. You cannot find the wine on the carpet. You cannot find the wine anywhere here. The wine is inside this glass. So the love of God, the Bible says, herein is the love of God, not in how much we love God, but in how He loves us. And then it explains in verse 9, that this love, this is the love of God, that we can have life by His life towards us. So, life is not in how much you love God, but in how He gave His life that you can have life. That is wherein the love of God is. And then, the Word is this Word of this life and how God made this available for us. That is the Word of God. So, today we're going to continue with this beautiful word. We're going to continue to speak about this love of God. And uh, I trust it's going to be beautiful to you and it's going to encourage you. So, just in conclusion, wrapping up what we've said last week, uh, this is what I've tried to communicate last week. That the word of God has to be the message of the love of God since God is the word and God is love. And that this love cannot be defined in weird ways. This love is defined in how God came to save you from sin and death and give you His life. That you can have life through the fact that He has life and gives you life for free. So, the Word of God will always be the message of of how God came to give you life as a free gift. And when we study the Bible, we must read every verse in order to see the Word of God. Now I just think now of uh, you know Noah and the flood. We've taken the word of Noah and the flood as the message of how God will destroy everybody that doesn't listen to Him. But that is not the story. That is not the word. The word is always the word of how you can live through him. So if you want to look at Noah and the flood, the, what you need to take away from that whole story is not in how did God kill those that didn't want to listen, because that is not what God's trying to communicate through that. What he's trying to communicate is in how he came and gave people life through his life. How he saves people. And I've just found so many times when you read the Bible, we don't, we're not reading the word. We're reading the condemnation. We're reading the guilt. The Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So the message in Christ is the message of no condemnation. I'm not talking about guilt, but no condemnation unto death when he's come to give us life. Now, we're going to continue. <clears throat> now, what we're then going to do today is we're going to take 1 Corinthians 13, and the Bible says it gives the attributes of love here. And we're just going to take God 
and ascribe these attributes to him. We're going to do it this week, and I just trust it's going to bless you greatly. So 1 Corinthians 13, and I want to just read from verse 4. It says, Love has patience, or charity has patience, and is kind. Charity is not envious, and is not vain, and is not puffed up. It does not behave indecently and does not seek her own, is not easily provoked and thinks no evil. Charity does not re, um, rejoice in unrighteousness. Oh my goodness, that is so beautiful. I hope we get to that today. But rejoices in truth, quietly covers all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And then it goes on and says that charity or love never fails. Amen. We need to understand that the love of God is also, it can also be seen as the charity of God. When we are charitable is when we look, and if I look at my own life, when I'm charitable towards somebody, I don't do it from the fear of the passage and uh, fear of hell where the scripture says, you didn't give to the poor, and if you didn't give to the poor, you didn't give to me. So many times we've got charity from the foundation of fear. No, true charity is not a it's not born from a fear of going to hell. <clears throat> True charity is born from seeing the value of somebody. Now, when I look at somebody sleeping under a bush, or uh, we've got a lot of those folk in South Africa around our town, they would just sleep in the bush. If I look at somebody like that, drunk, sleeping under a bush, dirty clothes, and hasn't taken a bath for weeks, what is in my mind is that is a human. That person is as valuable to God as what I am, as valuable as what Jesus is. It is his value that Christ has come to reveal. And inside that person, these depths, the depths of the depth of his heart is innocent and is beautiful and loving. There's a beautiful, innocent young boy or young girl right in there that cannot show forth because of lies and stuff that has been taught him. He's drowning out the notion and I feel what's happening to him there is unfair and it's not right and justice is not taking place. And then I would go into a shop and I would buy him clothes or buy him food and then take it to him and give it to him freely. Why? Because of the love that's in my heart for that person. And that is called charity. Now that is what God has towards us. And charity cannot come from a, a place where you don't have patience. You know, where it, 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 it does not, is not envious. It's not vain. It's not puffed up. I will just stand still but with that, with that wooden four, which, verse 4 which says puffed up. The love of God is not puffed up. You know, God doesn't think he's better than anybody. God doesn't sit in heaven and he's got this attitude where he says, well, I am worthy of worship and I need music around me and let these angels sing and let these people sing for I need worship. That's puffed up. If you, if you like that, that's puffed up. And the Bible says love is not puffed up. We quickly would, uh, would say when somebody's puffed up, well, he's not walking in the love of God. That's not right. That's idle. That's vain, we would say. But in the same breath, many times, we would think of God 
and we would say, look at God. He deserves all this worship and he demands worship. You shall fall down on your knees and worship him. God doesn't demand that. He's not puffed up. He is love. You see, we need to take, when we start our relationship with God, with praying, saying, our Father, if we start that way, that's how our relationship with God starts. Not from our boss, our master, our accuser, our lawgiver, our, you know, or righteous God, or whatever. But if we start with Father, then we will start to understand the love of God so much better. And we will not think things about God that we ought not to think about Him. We will know that He's not puffed up. I look at my kids and my relationship with them. I'm not puffed up towards them. When they come home, if if my son comes home and he's uh, went to the gymnastics and he comes and he walks in, in, into the home, I'm not sitting there saying, well, he needs to greet me for I'm his father. No, I greet him first. Hey, son, how was it? You know, did you enjoy it? Maybe he feels a bit down, didn't go well. You know, sometimes you kids get upset and you say to him, hey, what's wrong? Can I help you? Well, I don't want to talk about it now. Well, what do I do then? I, I'm not now going to hate him. No, because I am not walking, um, you know, impatiently towards him. Why? Because I am his father and I love him. And I would tell him, you know, maybe if you come into the house, not maybe, I think we come into the house, a good way to do things is, you know, I'm greeting you, I love you, and I love you. Uh, just say hi, Dad. You know, and, I, and then if he doesn't do it the next time, Am I now impatient and I'm going to beat up on my son? No, I love him and love is patient and we know that as time goes on, these things will develop and, and, and so forth. That's how these things work. So when we look at the love of God here, we know that the love of God is not puffed up. And verse 5 says so beautifully, it doesn't behave indecently. Afrikaans it says, handel nie onwel so beautiful. I just wish I had the ability to really translate that word, but maybe indecent is powerful enough. Maybe if I understood English good enough, I would have known that indecent is powerful enough. But what it means is, is that God is not going to act towards you in weird ways. He's not going to, let me put it this way, He's not going to put you through a desert to purify you, because that's not logical inside calling God your father. Who of us, and I've said this many times, who of us will take, what husband will take his wife out into the desert, let her get out of the car, stand in the desert there, next to her, put the air conditioner on high and cold, and you sit in the heaven of coolness in the middle of the desert and while she's having her desert experience and by putting her through that desert experience you're testing her faithfulness and you are seeing if she loves you and now you are purifying her getting everything out of her there's a need to be there nobody would do that why because that would be indecent that is not decent that's indecent and god the bible says love um, does not behave indecently when he treats us and talks to us, God will always come with respect. 
God will always come with love and the highest honor towards man. You know, when God made man, the first thing that he did after Adam opened his eyes is blessed Adam. He spoke well of Adam. When you speak somebody, you you declare something good about that person. Somebody comes to me and say, Bertie, man, I just want to bless you. I want to tell you that that message you preached was awesome. And thank you for uh, just how you brought it about. And thank you for this. He's blessing me. How? By speaking well of me. God spoke well of Adam. The word Barak or blessed in the Old Testament means to stand on bended knee and to speak with the highest adoration of greatness that you are beholding. And that is what God um, always does. He's not going to be indecent towards someone that is his image. He's going to always have equity of character towards that person. You know, many times when we... We can just see it in business. People will do business with you, and as long as they can make good money out of you, then uh, they're very friendly. But the moment they realized there is no money to be made out of you, they're gone. They would not even greet you properly. They would, And if they want to squeeze more money out of you, they will maybe use indecent ways to get you into that and into business with them. But God will never deal with us indecently. And the reason why I say these things is, at the end of the day, what I want to say in these two sessions is that we cannot come to a place where um, our logic about the atonement is found in God being indecent towards man. Let me say that again. When we come to our bottom line conclusion on the atonement, our theory on what atonement is, and what I, what I want to make it complicated, I want to say this, when we come to the bottom line conclusion on why Jesus died, why did Jesus die? That's such an important question. Uh, and the answer, if it's accurate, has got such great power. Why did Jesus die? If we don't know that God does not behave, um, God does not behave indecently, then we would ascribe indecent motives to God. Do you think it is decent for a father that when his son doesn't obey him to say, well, the decent thing to do is to kill you because you haven't obeyed me? No, that's indecent. That's indecent. Yet our atonement plan is found in the uh, traditional atonement plan of what is called the the penalty substitution or the satisfactory uh, atonement theory, which basically says that God's wrath had to be satisfied. Do you think it's decent for a father to say, I'm such a great father of such holiness and my commandment is of such high order that if you don't obey that, the decent thing for me to do is to kill you. Killing and family doesn't go together. <laughs> it doesn't go. It's indecent. It's indecent. It also says here, now you might say, Bertie, but why did, why did Jesus die? Jesus died so that the indecent thing we've done, or man has done, or the indecent thing that Satan brought to mankind, which is to bring sin and death to man, that he could 
alleviate or remove sin and death from us so that we can live. It's got nothing to do with an angry Abba, but it's got everything to do with a God that knows without him giving his life, we have no life, for we've lost our lives. He's come to give us life. That's what it's got to do. It's got everything to do with a loving father that sees that his son didn't obey his instruction and now he's bearing the consequences of that instruction and to save him from the consequences. If we have to define the redemption plan of God according to the law, you will say, but it is not fair because God is biased and we're not getting what we deserve. And that's not, uh, according to the law, just. But thank God he doesn't live according to the law. And we, he doesn't have a relationship with man based on the law. He's got a relationship with man based on him being our Abba and always seeing our value and saving us. Right. It says there uh, that love does not seek her own. You know, so many times in my way in which I looked at God, was that God was so much to seeking his own. I want it this way and you shall tow the line. If you don't tow the line, I'm not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not budging and you're getting nothing. It's almost like if it comes to the financial thing, it would be if you don't sow, then you cannot reap. And if you don't tithe, then God cannot bless you. It was like something that, I mean, that doesn't give life, does it? And then God would say, well, I don't care if you are worthy of me, if you've given your life, uh, or if I've given my life to save you, you know, there I draw the line and I'm not helping you. It doesn't work like that. God doesn't work like that because he is not seeking his own. This is not his own interest. He's not into this thing for himself. It's not about him receiving worship or him expanding his kingdom. You know, when we look at at uh, a church in general, I'm just talking in general, I'm not saying everybody, uh, and what I've had to do with in life, many times I'm talking about my own life. I haven't had pure motives always. I had, I was seeking my own. I was seeking this, this ministry to grow. I was seeking my own. I was seeking to become a big man of God, international evangelist, reaching the masses like Reinhard Bonnke. I wanted to be as big as Reinhard Bonnke, or at least something like that. You know, massive crusades and thousands or hundreds of thousands of people and people being uh, getting saved. And, 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 and deep inside there, there was a little bit of selfishness. But you know, God is not like that. He is not in need of servants. He is not in need of worshippers. His identity is strong. And... Um, the reason why love, I mean love, is not uh, seeking her own and it is about the one that he wants. I mean, uh, if we give to a beggar for the purpose of showing how generous we are so that we can get more financial donations, so that we at least also can live off some of that and give to others... um, Man, we're abusing the beggar. The beggar's already down, and now we're stepping on his head. That's what we're busy doing. It's abuse. God doesn't work like that. 
He is not into this thing for himself. He is into this for you. He wants you. And I do know that God will benefit from saving us in this way, that he will have friends that he can fellowship with and share his life with. But that's what it's about. It's about fellowship and sharing his life with people. The next point there says, not easily provoked, thinks no evil. Oh my goodness, that's a big one. I remember the times when I was uh, worshipping the Lord. You know, I went, when I, in my whole walk with the Lord, I went through these different phases, and maybe you as well. And some of these phases, um, in the beginning it was, um, it was worship. You know, God needs worship, and through worship we're going to usher in the presence of the Lord. And through worship and prophetic actions, we are going to get this, the, the earth right. I don't know exactly what we thought, but that is, that is what it was all about. And, you know, we, we just need, need this worship. And then we would be in this awesome presence and, and this worship and stuff. And then um, if something wrong happens, if somebody makes a noise or if a wrong thought comes to your mind or whatever, or you just lose concentration for a moment, then it is like God is now provoked. No, no, it says here that... Love is not easily provoked. And some would say, oh, you see, it's not easily be provoked, but it can be provoked. My goodness, why would you fend for an angry God? No, God is not angry. He is loving. He is not provoked. If God is provoked, it, it would be that he is provoked at uh, the lies that people believe that destroys people's lives and not at the person. And he wants to bring forth truth and destroy the lie by extravagantly, boldly manifesting the truth about who he is. So it says here that love is not easily provoked. I want to tell you, it is not easy to get God upset. It's not easy to get God upset. He is a patient God that doesn't seek his own, that will never deal with you indecently. He doesn't become angry easily, and he is not into this thing just for himself. It is actually about doing good to you. He's not in need of worshippers. He's not in need of, of having a big church. A worldwide church. That's not what he, 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 his identity is not in how big his church is. His identity is already found in him. The Bible says he's a fire within a fire. He is, his identity is inside himself. He's a self-existing one. He is very content with who he is. He is stable. He's a very stable, loving person that is not walking in the need of our affirmation of him or our obedience to him not to feel offended. It's like the one man said to me, I think I mentioned it two weeks ago, uh, I can't remember, but he said, why can't you just accept that Adam offended God? You know, because I said, uh, we were talking about this system where uh, God had to punish instead of redeem. But God had to punish. You're talking about the logic of killing inside family that we discussed earlier in the service here. So he said to me, why can't you just realize that What's difficult to think about, God got offended at Adam. Adam offended him in not obeying him. And then the just thing is to punish. 
and then that offense is gone. Well, I've got a problem with that because offend means to stumble at the truth. (laughs) So the stumbling block stumbled over the stumbling block. It just doesn't make sense. Now, God is not easily provoked. He's He's not easily offended. And the next one there says he thinks no evil. Glory to God. I want to tell you, God thinks no evil about you. He thinks good about you. But he can acknowledge the evil that is destroying your life. But of you, he thinks no evil. He doesn't have one evil thought about any person. He's only got good thoughts about us. He loves us. He thinks no evil. That word evil also uh, talk about, if we, if we study the Greek on evil, it means to be full of labor and annoyance, to be hard-pressed with labors. God doesn't think of ways wherein you need to do ten steps to have him to bless you or prosper you or do five good things for you or any of that. He is not there to put heavy burdens and labors and 20 principles upon the church wherein the church must just work every principle correctly so that the church can function and then if you don't work the principle correctly you get a slap on the wrist. Now that's not how God works. He's never worked like that and he will never work like that. So uh, it says here, he thinks no evil. You know, there's about 7 billion people on the earth and every person does have something wrong somewhere in his life. And imagine God thinks of those evil and thinks evil of those people. My goodness. I mean, I know what it does to me if I think evil of people, even if they do evil things. Even if somebody would harm me. Even if somebody would speak bad about me. If somebody... I mean, the other day, if somebody comes to my house, and I've heard this many times, Bertie, we hear bad things about you, and we hear good things about you. And, you know, I don't know why it is like that, but sometimes people like to tell you what bad things other people say about you. And when, I mean, I've done it. It's, and then you think of this, and then you might be a little bit, upset about that and you want to know what they're thinking and as you start to continue to think of that you know what it does to you man it just it it, it makes it difficult to be happy now imagine what evil thoughts about one person does to you what would the evil thinking evil thoughts about seven billion people do to you it will destroy you man I'll tell you, God's mind is not flooded with the evil people do. His mind is flooded with good thoughts about you. Amen. Hallelujah. So, um, and then goes on in verse 6, it says, Charity does not rejoice in unrighteousness. You know, I remember when I would read this uh, from the perspective I'm reading it now, uh, that part would like bother me a little bit, you know, because yeah, you see, he doesn't. It says there he does not rejoice with unrighteousness. He does not rejoice with unrighteousness. Uh, that means if you do something unrighteous, he's not rejoicing with you. He's now upset with you. That's not true context, you know. When we read uh, the scriptures, unfortunately, I don't. I think. Let me just see if I've got. No, I don't have those notes here. But um, when I spoke on the atonement, uh, that's two Sundays ago. 
You can go and read there. I read seven passages on the justice of God, wherein we see that the justice of God and the righteousness of God is in lifting people from lifting distress or lifting the burden from people. Bible says, do what is righteous, do what is right, do righteousness, do justice, and uh, deliver the person who's been robbed from his oppressor. The Bible says God wakes up in the morning to, now um, it says he arises, to do what? He says to do, uh, to be merciful towards us, to have compassion on us, for he is a God of justice. So when the Bible says he does not in, uh, rejoice in unrighteousness, it when he sees um, you going through difficulty and living in fear and having bitterness and all that, he says, man, that it's unrighteous that the child that I love, that I've designed to be the recipient of my goodness and love, that is going through those difficulties. If he sees us people, see people living in the turmoil and in the the pain of believing lies about the father trying to do good deeds so they can score points with God he doesn't rejoice in that unrighteousness no it's unrighteous for man to have the the bondage of sin over him he doesn't say he doesn't rejoice with you if you have a sin no he doesn't rejoice when the bondage of the un, the unrighteousness of man being bound by sin and man believing lies, he doesn't rejoice with that. It's like if my son believes a lie and um, if, if my son gets, gets to a place where he lives with bitterness or hatred or something like that or Eliana or somebody that I love that's close to me, um, I don't rejoice in him being in that state. Uh, th- that doesn't make me happy. And what it does is, when I see that, I want to see righteousness done. And what would righteousness done mean? It would mean that he can come to a place of rest where he doesn't have turmoil and distress and where he's got peace. And that would be on account of my doing, I want to bring that forth. So God doesn't rejoice in the unrighteousness of man dying. And then I, I want to explain that. It, God says an injustice was done to man in what happened in Adam and Eve. And that is not righteous. And I'm going to restore that. I hope you understand what I mean by, by that. He says, but he rejoices in the truth. What is the truth? The truth is uh, the original intent. The original way that he was thinking about you, the truth about uh, what a human is, for instance. What is a human? Look at Jesus at the right hand of the Father, and you will find the full, accurate definition of human. And then you find humans on the earth, and that was God's plan with man from the beginning, that man would be an immortal being that is seated in the Godhead, that fellowships with God, that loves God, that walks in relationship with God, and all those kind of things. That was his plan from the beginning. And that is the truth about man. That's the truth about his plan. That's the truth about everything. And then a lie was told to Adam and Eve, and they believed the lie, and now God does not rejoice in that lie or that injustice or that unrighteousness that was done towards man by the devil. 
but he rejoices in just revealing the truth about how much he loves us, the truth about who he is. Amen. Glory to God. Uh, It says here that love quietly covers all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You see, the love of God covers sin. The love of God would, would take away sin. It doesn't just look at, look at sins. Yes, this, this, this. No, 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 no. The love of God covers all things. That, you know, there's nothing too high or too bad that you have done that the love of God cannot cover. And the love of God is defined in Him giving you life. So there's nothing you have done that, that can block God from redeeming you, saving you, giving you life making sure that your life is restored. There's nothing. This, this love of God covers all things. This love of God believes in people. Do you know that God believes in you? His love believes all things. That means the love of God, the action where God came to bring you life was also an account of God believing in you. I've said this many times. If you believe something, you become what you believe in. What you believe is what you become. Um, if if you if you believe some if if you believe in a superhero, then you start to get dressed like the superhero. You do things like that superhero. Just look at your kids. That's what they do. They look at Superman. You know, then they get dressed like Superman. They do things because that's who they believe in. And God became a human. If God became a human, does that not mean that He actually believed in us? He believed enough in us to give his life so that he could redeem us and make sure that we have got eternal life and don't waste away and go to eternal corruption and decay. Isn't that beautiful? He believes in you. He says, hopes all things. No, God has got a confident expectation that the life that he has given to you freely, it says love hopes all things. It doesn't say God hope you come right every day. It says love, in other words, and we've defined love, Love is not that we love God, but that he loved us and gives us life as a free gift. So God, in his action of giving us life as a free gift, confidently every day have got that expectation that that love will manifest in your life. And he doesn't give up hope. His mercies are new every morning. Hallelujah. It endures all things. I think that is just... A synonym for the same thing. He endures all things. You might say, uh, I went onto a drinking spree, or I started to smoke cigarettes, and now I feel guilty about it, or I've done this bad thing, or I've done that bad thing. And now, I want to tell you, the love of God can endure the pressure that's put upon it. God is not changing His attitude towards you. If the Bible says, this is what love is like, and God is love, at least, God has to have these attributes in him and actively live those attributes towards us. Isn't that powerful? That is what love is. And then it says here, love never fails. And that's what I'm going to end off with today. It says that love never fails. That means that that would fail there uh, in the true context means never ends. It's not as if love is now, okay, I've... I've had enough, and now God's fed up. Now we get the idea with Noah and the flood, as if God got fed up with man. And that, therefore, 
God decided, I'm now tired of man and now I'm going to destroy man. That is not true. God looked at the wickedness of man and saw how the earth is being destroyed by the wickedness of man. And as the imbalances came into nature and all these kind of things, and God saw that there was a great flood coming, and that nobody wants to listen to him, he realized that the only thing that's going to take place is that these people are going to be destroyed by that flood, and God's plan was to save man from the flood that they brought over themselves. It wasn't as if God one day said, well, now I, my love fails now. I, I stop to love you now. Now I'm going to kill you. It's no. You've chosen this death. And I love you and I'll preach to you. And even when God says the earth will be destroyed by a flood, God still for 120 years after that, through Noah, preached repentance to the souls that were captive in the sins back then. That's what took place. And he preached and none of them, they mocked Noah until the day of the flood. And then they died. When they died, it wasn't a sign of the love of God failing. It was just a sign of what God warned them against that will come over them because of their own doing, bringing injustice to themselves and how it will destroy them. And God was sad about that. They even read in Genesis 6 that God went and poured out his heart and basically, if you read in the correct way, seek consolation, seek encouragement from Noah because he spoke to Noah and he said this is what's going to happen and what he was basically saying is he took it so much upon himself that he was saying I'm destroying these people you know many times when it when you as a parent when you want to help your child and you find that you just cannot help him because he doesn't want to listen or you want to help somebody in counseling and they don't want to listen you, you feel as if you are failing them. It's, you feel actually, I'm destroying them because why can I not help them? And you would say, man, I don't know what it is, but th- they being destroyed, I, I, I'm, I'm going to have them destroyed because I'm giving them over to what they want. It's not that you don't love them anymore, but you have to have to let them go. It's like if somebody wants to marry someone that you don't think is the right person, at the end of the day, if that's that person's choice, and they go into that, and it destroys their life, and you now say, well, I give you over to this, I allow this, because that's your choice. Does that mean your love for them has failed or ended? Never. It says prophecy can end, and tongues can end, but the love of God will never end. So I want to tell you that the patience of God and all the attributes that we've mentioned here. Let me just quickly run through them Um, in 1 Corinthians 13 here. It says, the patience of God can never end. Um, God will never start to envy. You'll see it, I've got it all in bold there. He he will never walk in vanity towards you. He's never going to be puffed up. Is never going to walk indecently to you. It will, that way of living towards you will never fail. He's never going to seek his own. He's never going to be easily provoked. He's never going to think evil of you. He's never going to rejoice in unrighteousness. Um, he's always going to re- rejoice in the truth. And his love will always cover all things. Will always be able to help you. Will always, he will always believe in you. He'll always have good expectations. For you by his doing, not from you, but for you by his doing, and he will endure whatever it takes to bring that forth in your life, it will never end. 
Glory to God. <laughs> Amen. I want to thank you so much for watching this. It's such an honor to serve you with the good news. And uh, please uh, feel free to contact any of our internet pastors. Just go to dynamicministries.com and click on the Web Pastors tab. And there you'll find all the necessary information about our internet church and our web pastors. And if you need any counseling or any prayer, please feel free to contact any of them. They would love to serve you with this good news. Thank you so much for watching and I will see you again next week. God bless.